The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Show. I'm your host Dave Homewood and I'm once again here with Noel Cruz. Hi Noel. Hi Dave. We're just getting on to your uh, exciting new career of flying caribous in the RAAF and uh, that was in 1971, January 1971 wasn't it? Yeah, my exciting new career. I wasn't quite sure if it was going to be exciting or not as I think I told you after at the end of my fighter flying days. Uh, I'd been given the choice um, I was, you know, because the Sabre had been phased out and I was too senior to be upgraded to Mirage, yada yada yada, all the excuses they gave me. But I had a choice of becoming a C-130 driver or a caribou driver and I thought about this long and hard because the C-130 was you know the big four engine turbo prop, you know, globe girdling machine and all the rest of it, but it it seemed to me a bit too much like an airliner. Having done what a lot of the guys uh, had did about that stage, because I'd, I'd just sort of going back 12 months if you like, my short service commission of six years as it was in those days was coming to an end so everyone applied to join Qantas because the Air Force was very slow in sort of offering an extension to your commission and so we all applied and I went along to the interview with Qantas and uh, sat down and they, with the interview board and uh, we started talking about what you do in a, in a Boeing 707 as the, the third pilot or the second officer or whatever he's called. And I was asking questions like, when do I get to fly this airplane? I said, oh, well, you get to stand watch in straight and level flight. I said, what does that mean? Oh, you make sure the autopilot doesn't disconnect. 
So I sit in straight and level flight and make sure the autopilot doesn't disconnect itself. Yes. When do I get to fly this aeroplane? <laughs> and after about 20 minutes of this circular discussion and interview, they said, Mr. Cruz, we don't think that you'd be really suited as an airline pilot. And I said, I think you're quite right. And we shook hands and I left. And that, was, that was the end of my airline career. <laughs> so, of course, here I'm now given the option of flying this aeroplane, which to me still seemed like an airliner. And I certainly couldn't get to be a captain on in probably the first, I don't know, 12 months or so, maybe longer. And I thought, oh, I can't handle that. Having just come from a, an arrangement where I was my own captain and there was no one else in the aeroplane to get into this crude environment with all of these people I had to sort of fit in with and then not be the boss. So, And also I looked at the role. And of course, in those days, the, the Caribou was operating in, in Vietnam. Yeah. And uh, so that would be interesting. And the sort of places they went and what they did with them, even though it was a much simpler aeroplane. So I thought, no, from a role point of view, uh, the Caribou seems like a much more fun aeroplane to fly. So I opted for Caribous. Yeah. And then just before I was, I was due to move, you know, pack my bags, the Caribou came into Williamtown one day, for whatever reason, I don't know, and I wandered down to have a look over it. And look at this big boxy thing, completely hollow, and thought, oh God, I made the right decision. <laughs> you wander up in the cockpit, as someone said many, many years later, yeah, where do you shuffle the coal? <laughs> 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 and, and I thought, oh, golly, has this been the right... But it's too late. The, the paperwork was cut and I'm off to number 38 squadron to be getting the caribou conversion. So I went there and uh, I did my first flight on the 25th of January, just before my birthday, actually. Yep. January 1971, just looking at my logbook, which I've got open here so I can remember some of this stuff. And fronted up to 38 Squadron, which was in the old World War II type um, brick buildings on the side of the hangar. It was stepping back in time in many ways. Yeah. And uh, all these young pilots were there. I mean, they were all so young. I know, this is crazy. I'm a whole, I don't know, 27 or 28 myself at this stage, and these were all youngsters. I was starting to feel like an old man already. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a flight lieutenant now. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, but the thing I noticed on day one, all these young kids are being briefed to do these various jobs because I'd never really thought too much about the nitty gritty of how you, you know, where these jobs come from or what you do, especially in a peacetime caribou operation. Because I must explain in sabre or fighter operations in general, it's a bit like being in an aero club. You always come home each night. Yeah. I mean, you'll do a 50-minute sortie, then you'll debrief, then you go and do another one, you'll do, and then you'll go home that night. Only when you go away and exercise... Um, do you leave home base? But even then, it's you, you, you go out and return to a fixed base. Like when we were based in Darwin, we operated out of Darwin, came home today. So every night you came home to the same place, which was good for the social life. Caribous didn't do that. They would head off for a week, and the, and the boss and the CO and all the rest of it would never see them because okay. they'd be working with the army out here or they'd be doing some sort of a famine relief, dropping hay bales to, to, to chickens and cows or whatever. I wouldn't come home for a week. Yeah. And these two young pilot officers were driving it, were totally in charge of the whole operation. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Because when I was a pilot officer, you know, I was a wingman. You know? For the first 12 months, almost two years, I was the wingman. Not till I got to be a Category B fighter pilot could I actually lead a formation of four jets. No way. You know? I think I led a pair a couple of times in my second year. But here are these guys with you know, no more than 12 months out of flying school taking this big, ugly monster of an airplane away for a week, you know? 
And between them, they didn't have as much time in the Air Force as I had. And, and I thought, that's got to be pretty cool. These young guys have really got to sort of uh, rise to the occasion or blow it, you yes. know? Yeah. And by the time I'd been there a few weeks, I started to realize that the average young caribou pilot had this greater sense of maturity, if you like, this sense of being in command of the situation. Yeah. We're not always following the leader or looking over the, 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 his shoulder at being brazzed for not being in close formation or not hacking the maneuver or something like that. They just went and did the job. Yeah. If they made silly mistakes along the way, you know, what stayed away from the base, stayed away from that, stayed amongst the crew. They obviously fixed it. They brought the aeroplane home in one piece and they achieved the job. And so I thought, this is different. This is really, and this, this actually appealed to me, this way of these young men were actually rising to the occasion. Yeah. So that was the first thing I noticed even before I got on the aeroplane because we did about, oh, felt like a month, probably two, three weeks of ground school going through the systems. And of course, we, we the ground school wasn't, like any other ground school I'd done in that all the other ground schools on in the flying schools and as fighter the detail the technical details were given to you by another fighter pilot who knew the stuff right in the caribou squadron it was given to you by the technicians the engineers who worked on it because they had their own maintenance seen as part of it so we were taught about the electrical system by the engineer the electrical engineer so he went into it in minute detail I mean I can remember spending an hour and a half on, on this oil control valve and how it changed with temperature. And I could sum it up in, in, in two words. It was like a car thermostat. We had to learn about it for an hour and a half. <laughs> so I thought, this is a little bit too much detail for me, but, that, but it, was all there. it was all well done and straightforward. So he's passed the exams, et cetera, et cetera, learned all about the electrics. So it had, uh, more, had two engines, so you had multiple this and double that and cross that. But it was not too complicated. Not too complicated. The other thing that I learned about it was that the caribou has, I'm trying to remember now, I wrote about it in my book, 24 or 26 moving surfaces. Okay. You know, it's got full span double slotted flaps uh, with ailerons which droop like the flaps on the upboard side. It has got um, aileron interconnect tabs, it's got aileron trim tabs, it's got aileron spring balance tabs. On the tail, you have an all moving tail with spring tabs, trim tabs, you have then a push rod that, or a torque tube which goes between the flaps and the tail plane to adjust the whole incidence of the tail plane as the flaps go down to keep it in trim. And they're all mechanical, either torque tubes or pulleys and wires. Right? And I'm thinking, oh my God, what a dog's breakfast this is. This has got to be a nightmare to keep serviceable. Right? It was almost like some... <clears throat> some university course in, in how to make a mechanical aeroplane as complex as possible. Nowadays, they just never do that. They'd have electric motors with, thermo with, with, with wiring between and a computer to run it, which they do. This was all mechanical. But the thing was, they just worked. And these aeroplanes I have and everyone else has put them into so many rough paddocks, dirty, wet environments. Never had a problem with this system. So I take my hat off to the, guy who actually, the guys who actually designed it. They did a damn good job. There was rarely, that I'm aware of, any problem with you know, one of the pulleys breaking or a cable getting slack and throwing the thing out of rig. It just worked. <clears throat> so I started to appreciate this machine. It was designed to be very robust. It was like a, like a Jeep. You could throw it into mud puddles and land it on all sorts of funny places and it would just re-emerge and keep working. Yeah. I often use the analogy a bit like the Blues Brothers car you know, <laughs> from that movie. <laughs> yeah. 
you beat the Christ out of it and it just hangs together. It, get, it gets back home and then collapses because <laughs> it's home and it takes a week to get it back in the air again after you've reassembled it. But until it gets home, it just hangs in there. I've had airplanes do that to me. You know? and we've taken them in some crazy places. So little by little, I started to understand <clears throat> how this airplane worked. And then we got to the flying phase. And this was rather funny. I did a whole four flights. Four? Four flights, yeah. Four, four dual flights before my first solo. And my first solo, of course, because you had a, I had an experienced co-pilot from the, from the squadron who sit there to make sure that I didn't blow anything. But the airplane was quite easy to fly, actually. It was like a big Cessna. That's all it was. Not difficult. In fact, a bit smoother than a Cessna. But, of course, it was a twin-engine airplane. And this was the first surprise that I had. My instructor, Stuart McAllister, who was a guy who was sort of my, my pilot's course here, gone straight to transports. And he's getting... Very heavy. So, oh, it's a twin-engine airplane. No, so you've got to be careful. This asymmetric. I know you haven't done much asymmetric work. I don't think he realised the adventures that I had in the Canberra bomber at this stage. Right. And he thought I was just a straight, you know, pure jet airplane. So it's got propellers. So the slipstream goes round, round circles, and it's got two of them. And so asymmetrically, you really go watch it. I'm thinking, oh no, not another Canberra bomber. Please, not another Canberra bomber. <laughs> and to make his point, on the very first takeoff, he pulled an engine on me. Right? I'm, I'm just talking the feel of this airplane. He warned me, I must admit. He said, got airborne. He said, well, now I'm going to pull an engine on you. I'm going to pull the starboard engine. So are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm really ready. I'm mentally really ready. And he whapped the throttle close, and I stood on the rudder and whacked in the halo and nearly did a barrel roll into the live engine. And the next time I'm hearing, whoa, 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 don't, you're doing too much, too much. And so I backed off everything and got it back under control. And I looked at him and said, this is a pussycat. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I said, compare with the Canberra bomber, this is a pussycat. Oh, oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> so he got me so G'd up. <laughs> and in fact, it was. Uh, asymmetric handling was, was so easy. Yeah, you had to stand on rudders a bit, but, but they worked, big rudder. Um, and uh, later on, when I got to test fly them, uh, I, I used to get to the point where you could go full asymmetric, full power on one engine, no power on the other, and bring it back to the point of stall and still have control. Wow. Yeah. The, uh, this is a, a, a clean stall, not flap stall, but it would stall at about 70 knots clean, right? but you had a, a minimum control speed of 66 knots. Okay. So you could literally stall the airplane asymmetrically and still have control over it, which is brilliant. Yeah. Un unlike that you know, window of death for the Canberra had. <laughs> um, so a little I started to realise that this is not such a bad aeroplane at all. So the conversion course covered all sorts of, um, all the normal stuff. We did night flying and instrument flying, and then we mixed it with dual and solo, and then we got into stole operations. We went out to, well, first of all, we had a grass uh, runway on the, on the main airfield itself just to practice on, but then out locally around the Richmond uh, area, there was a couple of short strips on the sides of hills and things which we would practice on, and that was damn good fun. You know, bringing this, this, this was a 98 foot wingspan aeroplane, right? uh, bringing it and landing it on a strip that I would think twice about putting a light aeroplane on. Right. Yeah. Uh, of course, it had reverse pitch propellers. Uh, it had these masses of flaps. They come to, the, the flaps on the caribou came down 80 degrees. 80 degrees of flap, you think about that. Now, the, 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 I don't know what it, why it was, but the little indicator in the cockpit went from zero to 40 because the indicator measured off the middle stage of the flap. Being, a, being a, a two-stage flap, the middle stage went to 40 and then the outer stage went to 80. So you had this theory, oh, I've only got 40 degrees of flap. Then you looked at it and thought, no, nah, more than that, what's going on here? <laughs> I, 
I don't know who, who didn't write the number 80 on it. Maybe they want to scare the pilots or something. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, because the only thing that you did lose when you had full flap down was the aileron control was a wee bit sluggish at that stage. You sort of wound the wheel from... So on a turbulent day, you're winding the wheel from one side to the other just to keep the wings level and using the rudders in secondary, uh, secondary effector rudder to keep it straight. But once you got the hang of that, which wasn't too bad, it was a bit like sort of, I don't know, piloting a ferry boat on finals. <laughs> but you were so slow. Um, I remember early in this course, we, I took one across to, to Bankstown because Hawker de Havilland at Bankstown were doing some anti-corrosion uh, treatment on certain parts of the aeroplane. So it was always aeroplane going over there to be yeah. touched up for a few days or so. And I took one into Bankstown Airport and lined up on the main runway there and, uh, and, and actually dropped, just to make a point, dropped full flap to see if I could turn off before the first taxiway and taxi straight to the Hawker de Havilland's. And I was being passed by Cessnas on the parallel runways, because there's three runways there. We were flying down final slower than the Cessnas, and this aeroplane which literally was hanging its wing over the Cessnas. <laughs> um, so I, I was, it didn't take me too long to start to appreciate that this is an interesting aeroplane in itself. Right? And then, of course, we started getting into so-called cross-country work, navigation work, which you think, well, it's you know, ordinary. I've been taught to navigate, and I've navigated the Sabre around the countryside all the time, no problems at all. As I think I may have told you about that adventure I had in the Sabre, flying from Townsville back to, uh, to Williamtown at night, where my ADF light had gone out, and so all I did was point it at the Southern Cross for two hours and got there, you know. When you're flying at 500 plus knots true airspeed, navigation is really, really simple. It tends to go exactly where you point it. <laughs> Whereas when you're down at, at doing 140 knots true airspeed in a caribou at 7,000 feet, you are then subjected to all the vagaries of the winds and the mountains and so forth. So navigation uh, is a different thing. And I guess in reality, you know, look back now, I learnt more about navigating that aeroplane than anything else. Okay. And that stood me in good stead later on when I was teaching navigation to people in light aeroplanes because yeah. of things you could use. But we went way beyond the standard sort of pilot navigation stuff because the instructor that we had on the conversion course, there was a, a navigator, a real live navigator. I'd only ever flown with one of them once before, as you may recall, yeah. in the camera, and he never spoke to me again. <laughs> this guy started teaching us about all these wonderful things, like, <clears throat> especially on instrument flying, um, where you could, we had, we had VORs and VARs, and we had DME, and we had ADFs, and we had twin needles and things, so lots of radio ads, more so than I ever had in a Sabre, so you could sort of pinpoint where you were and go to them. So we used to do what was called airways navigation where you'd literally just fly to every beacon like an airliner did and there's a when you fly to Townsville there's a million goddamn beacons and you're turning changing heading every five minutes over this VOR track inbound to this ADF outbound of the ADF to some other VOR and all rest of it and you know that was all it was just basically dialing frequencies and following needles that wasn't much fun at all but then we got into what we called off airways navigation where you draw a line on a map a straight line for four hours and fly it, and then use these really navigator navigation, or transferred position lines, and all that sort of stuff, and, and plotting cocked hats and things off radio fixes a beam in the aircraft. And I got pretty good at that, and I rather enjoyed it. And I do recall not a little, little bit later than this, but but the time I used it once, I remember we flew up to Townsville, which in a caribou was seven hours okay. flight, seven hour flight from Richmond to Townsville, and we did it on one heading, drew a straight line on the map which took us inland of all the airways and so forth, and it was IFR. We entered cloud at 500 feet and came out of it again at 500 feet at Townsville. It was just socked in and flew the whole thing in a straight line, fully IFR, using all this wonderful navigation stuff. We're giving our position reports to the local flight service in latitudes and longitudes 
And they're going, oh, humph, yeah, okay. <laughs> We're at this latitude, longitude, we expect to be at this latitude, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> and transferring these position lines, and, and it worked. And that was really cool, and I'd never navigated anything like that before. So I learned a whole lot about navigating from these navigator guy. And uh, we used to do a lot of night work. Night navigation was good. I, I think I doubled my total night flying in about the first couple of months flying caribou. Because okay. I say we didn't fly at night too often in a, in a Sabre. We didn't do IFR in a Sabre. You go up and down through the cloud. So here we are buried in cloud or flying around at night. So I expanded my horizons hugely. And uh, oh, we learned how to drop things by parachute, and, uh, which is nothing like dropping bombs. Bombs tend to go where you point them. Parachutes have a mind of their own. <laughs> we, had, we had about three different sorts of things. You had these little things called compacts, which are just little boxes. You could toss out the back with a parachute and you could toss a dozen at a time. You'd drop them for only a couple hundred feet and they tended to go within the paddock that you're over. And that was good for resupplying troops and things. There were these bigger boxes called an A-22. I have no idea what they were called that. And these were things like half the size of a room would just fit in a caribou and they had to roll out the back. And, and the, then four or five parachutes would deploy. This is the Hollywood movie type air delivery. They would go anywhere because you had to drop them from about a thousand feet to ensure that all the parachutes had popped open and not tangled and got organized. And then this thing would leisurely float in any direction after that. <laughs> Despite the fact that you'd figured out where the winds were from and where, you know, where your drop point was going to be to drift it in that direction to land, it never worked. They always went somewhere else. So that was you know, very much a lottery, which I found rather amusing. In fact, I remember at the, uh, there was an army unit there which used to pack all this stuff because you know, part of the role of the caribou is to support the army in the field. So if we were going to have to drop gear to an army exercise or something, then the gear was decided by the army. So they would pack it into the boxes and, and work and be compatible with the caribou and then we'd toss it out the back. And one of the things uh, in those days, there was a, a little motor car called, uh, made by Volkswagen called a Haflinger. It was like a mini moke made by Volkswagen, right? Well, they had one there called a quarterlinger because <laughs> they had airdropped this one and one of the parachutes didn't open and it went in like a dart. Sprong! <laughs> Point first. So it went from a halflinger to half the size. Well, what's half of a half? It's a quarterlinger. <laughs> and they had this almost as a trophy in the corner there. <laughs> uh, and so we, as part of the course, we dropped a bunch of these things. But the most fun ones are called a lapse. LAPES stands for Low Altitude Parachute Extraction System, L-A-P-E-S, LAPES. And this was one where you dropped it from four feet, okay. literally. Yeah. Um, it was designed, imagine, you know, you, you, the, the space you needed to drop it was about the same size as a runway. So, of course, the question is, why don't you just land and offload it? Well, sometimes you can't land because it's so boggy. You know, places we used to go sometimes after the rains would be six inches of... Or 12 inches of mud and slush and so forth and if you landed there you, you have to dig the airplane out in the uh, a month later when it dried out yeah. so it was designed to be able to put the load on the ground without the airplane getting bogged so you'd run down the run with your wheels down so if you do happen to misjudge your height slightly by a few feet at least the wheels would bounce on the mud rather than the, the thing you drop a touch of flap and you set up as if you're going to land like a landing approach and then you'd level off uh, but only a touch of flap so that you were flying slightly nose high at the, at the low speed, so the ramp was uh, sloping downhill. And then uh, the parachute would be deployed from a little bomb rack down the back, which would fling out the back, grab the load, and just pull it out the back of the airplane. Yep. So theoretically, um, the by the time the load dropped the four or five feet to the ground, it was almost stationary. So we just went plop and slid forward a couple of load lengths, and that was it. 
and, uh, and the aeroplane would fly away. And that was good fun, because you literally get to low fly at about four feet down <laughs> over these paddocks and so forth. And, and, and the pilot had a, a little pickle button actually on the panel, on, on the stick. So this is more like the real thing. You fly down and you pickle the button on the stick and <laughs> out you'd come. The loadmaster job, of course, was to make sure it was not tied down to the aeroplane when this happened. Oh, right. So you actually deployed that from the cockpit? Yeah. Oh, right. oh, yeah. yeah. Well, we are all deployed from the cockpit. The other ones okay. were deployed just by flashing a light and the guys down the back would give it the final shove. Yeah. But you've got to remember that we had a loadmaster and sometimes two loadmasters down the back for these aerial deliveries because the loads had to be tied down securely for takeoff and transit and then they had to untie them. So uh, there was a point where they were completely loose in the cabin with the ramp already lowered and so forth, so they would roll out the back in a straight line, not jam on the side or anything like that. Um, so when you're dropping the compacts, they were just hand thrown off the back. The big A22s would be pushed and just they would roll down because you'd, you'd fly the airplane slow enough to have the, 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 the whole floor tilted. But the, the LAPES, that was not one that you could, you have to drop it more accurately. You couldn't just say, oh, drop it now. What? What'd you say? Drop it now. Too late. <laughs> so, <laughs> So you'd actually fly down and just hit the pickle button on, on the control column and phew, out it would go. So that was more like almost, almost, almost kind of like flying a fighter. <laughs> but a bit slower because you'd be doing about a, you know, 90 or 100 knots or so. It's a pity you didn't have your GoPro back then. No, oh no. Some of that stuff would be really good with GoPros. I'm sure that they probably use them now, but I mean, just having one in the cabin to watch this thing go out the back, yeah. Oh, we'd love to have GoPros in some of the airfields we used to go to too, on the place. So we learned all about instrument flight, and the course was full on, and it was really, really enjoyable. Really enjoyable. And uh, the grand finale, of course, was then we had to go to Papua New Guinea to then use all of our skills and learn the techniques of landing and uh, sloping runways, navigating around the countryside, because in those days there were no radio aids in Papua New Guinea at all, apart from VOR at Moresby and I think Madang and Ley had VORs. There was no ADFs on the mountains or anything like that. There was no GPS. It was a map in the hand and navigate by visual reference around the mountains. Remembering that the mountains in Papua New Guinea go to about 15,000 feet high, the service ceiling of a caribou fully loaded is about 10,000 feet. Okay, so there's no thought of popping up over the mountains. You were down in the valleys, boy, and uh, by about three to four o'clock in the afternoon, the thunderstorms would start to build, and that was when flying was over. If you weren't on the ground by then, you were in deep shit. <laughs> and I'd been there a couple of times thinking, oh my God, how do I get out of this mess? You know. But anyway, this is our first flight up there. This was the Papua New Guinea training flight. <clears throat> and we deployed three caribous, and we flew up to Townsville, and we dovetailed this with a, one of the Air Force um, air shows in Townsville. And Stu McAllister, who was the glorious instructor, nominated me as his co-pilot for the air show. And we actually flew in the air show and did a, a LAPES demonstration in front of the crowd. That was fun. And then we packed up the next day and flew to Port Moresby and then we were briefed on the flights. We're going to, and all three airplanes were going to follow each other around the place. Um, and each airplane had two students and an instructor on board, right? So it's six students and three instructors. All cool. And on day one, we headed off uh, from Moresby down to the east along the south coast to the east along what were reasonably flat, ordinary sort of fields, but just to get used to the higher density altitude operations of this aeroplane, you know, the fact that the, and a bit heavier loaded, the fact you've got to anticipate because they didn't flare too well with the forward seat, all the little things. And the deal was that the instructor would sit in the right-hand seat and each student would alternately sit in the left seat, okay? Yeah. And the other student would then stand between the seats because you had these radio racks behind and you could sort of put your feet on those and stand up 
and, and hang on and see what was going on. And en route then, the guy in the pilot seat, the student, would navigate, right, because the flying was easy, apart from you know, just steering it, but then approaching the airfield, the role would change, and then the student hand over the maps, and he would take control, and then he would be instructed on how to land in these little airfields. Okay. This was the deal. And then we would swap. I can't remember, I think we'd done two or three, uh, where I'd, I navigated slash landed, and then the next guy navigated slash landed, but um, it was approaching lunchtime, and we are going into an airfield called Tufi, which was the first sloping airfield. It had about a, oh, not, not, not too serious, only about a 5 or 6% slope. It was about 2,000 feet of grass. Not huge, but you know, for a light aircraft, no big deal. You know, and for a caribou, no big deal. I, I subsequently learned. <laughs> and uh, it was on a headland, uh, right on the beach. It ran 90 degrees to the beach. You actually approached over the water, and the threshold was at the, the sand. Right? And it was lovely. The whole real estate there was absolutely beautiful. The guy who I was... I'm standing between the seats, watching all of this going on, right? And the guy in the left seat was having a little bit of difficulty pinpointing which of these little headlands the airfield was on. Now there was on one of th about four of these little headlands with little bays in between. And instructor being a glorious being a flying instructor was writing, come on, come on, what do you, what do you mean you can't figure it out? And getting a bit flustered. So finally he made the, the student made the decision, oh it's on that headland there, it's over there. Right, let's start the descent. So now he hands over. And part of the procedures of a caribou you have these descent approach checks you do before you start descending and then when you're downwind leg you've got the downwind checks and on base leg you've got a couple of other things to do you know, get the props up and all that sort of stuff because you know, also we got behind in those so the descent approach checks weren't done until we're on the downwind leg and the downwind checks weren't done to a turning base and at this point uh, our glorious instructor says oh taking over you're getting a bit behind it and also this is your first sloping strip so i'll demonstrate how it's done famous last words because we were also planning to stop at Tufi, this wonderful place, sit on the beach and have our box lunches, right? So we're going to cancel our SAR watch on the HF with Port Moresby. So here, he suddenly realised he hasn't done this. He should have done this before we hit the, the circuit. So we're turning finals, and he's onto the HF radio to Port Moresby, and whatever our call sign was, cancel SAR. What? Say again? Cancel SAR. So we're coming down finals. The aeroplane's slowed. He's in the stole configuration. We're aiming at this little grass strip, and I'm saying, well, this is pretty cool, it's pretty cool. But he's talking on the radio. And this is the classic case of being distracted. I saw in the news just tonight the number of people who crash on the roads because they're talking on the mobile phone. This is before mobile phones, and it happened again. He flared, touched down, and of course, with a caribou, I, I should mention this before, to get the engines into reverse, you close the throttle, the, the throttles hang from the roof. So you close the throttles engine spool down. You then push the throttle handle straight up into the roof. Effectively, they move up about two or three inches. Clunk. This engages two electrical switches which drive the propellers to reverse pitch and two little blue lights come on in front of the pilot. Then and only then you pull the, the throttles back and you get full power with the propellers in reverse pitch. So you've got to go land, push, get two blues, reverse. So one, two, three process. One, two, three. He goes one, closes the throttle, two, punches them up to reverse, and three, hits the transmit button to acknowledge the final call from Port Moresby. Something in his brain got 
sidetracked and he thought he'd done the three actions, despite the fact that it wasn't the normal roaring noise of two Pratt & Whitney R2000s <laughs> developing 1,400 horsepower in reverse. <laughs> we are now about a third of the way up the runway, the sloping strip, and I'm just standing there watching this. I, re I recognise the fact that he hasn't pulled them back, and I'm thinking, he's doing this deliberately. He's trying to prove something. He's trying to prove how good this aeroplane is by stopping it at the last minute or something like that. And he's still talking on the radio. And then the loadmaster, who's down the back, looking out the side window, says, uh, the wheels are locked. Which means subconsciously he's hitting the brakes, realising that the fence is coming up, but it's not getting through to the conscious part of his brain. So he's now locked the wheels and they're sliding on this wet grass. And about then I realised, I don't give a stuff how good this caribou is, we're not going to stop. <laughs> we're about, oh no, approaching two-thirds of the way up the strip. And I thought, we're not going to stop. By now it's starting to filter through. I could have, I suppose, because these throttles are... I could have actually grabbed them and pulled them back, but you just don't do that. I'm not part of the flying crew, you know. And by, even if I had at that stage, I, I had this feeling it wasn't going to work anyway. And it was almost like, at this stage, the brain goes into hyperdrive, and it seemed like I had slow motion. I stepped down from my perch between the seats, I turned around, and I eyeballed the tail cone of the aeroplane and thought, can I make it down to the tail cone before we hit that fence? No, we can't. I'm not going to make it. So I lay down on the floor. Now there's a little four-inch step between the main cargo floor and up to the cockpit floor. And I lay down and hook my heels against that and grab the staunchions which hold up the seats either side. Now there's four other guys there, just hangers on. A couple of troops and all the rest of it. And they're all looking at me like I'm lying on the floor between their feet. And they're looking at me like, what are you doing down there? And now I'm now gazing up through the cockpit door, up through the cockpit roof, because they've got a bubble canopy type arrangement with the covers back. So I'm seeing everything. As I say, this felt like it took, ten, or it took as long as it took me to say it. It was probably only microseconds because as I'm lying down looking up through there and conscious of these facial, I hear, shit, roar! <laughs> as he realises that he hasn't pulled on the power. So he screams out shit and rams these engines into full reverse and gets them spooled up to full reverse just in time for them to hit the fence. And somewhere in there he says, we've got a prank! And there's this almighty bang. And I see the left-hand propeller with the gearbox heading off. I'm looking up through the heading off into the jungle like a helicopter, thinking, oh, that's curious. <laughs> and I knew there's a there's a hill at the end. And this fence, of course, is not just your ordinary little local suburban fence you see around here. It was made of tree stumps and logs. Yeah. Each each of the verticals was a whole part tree, and then these huge logs across the top. It was a massive fence. And, of course, the, the strip sloped up this 12 degrees up to, a, <clears throat> I don't know, 10 or 15 feet above a little gully, gully, which was a sweet potato field, actually. And we fell down into that. So the nose pitched down, and I had no idea what was off the end. I'm thinking, oh, my God, here we go, we're all dead. And wham! And the whole thing just stopped with this hissing noise. <laughs> and, of course, by now, of course, the, uh, the loadmaster, who was also on the headset, and I was on the headset, but the other four guys weren't, the loadmaster was aware, he heard that we're going to crash, he, he reacted immediately, ran down the back and blew the, or wanged the side door open. Um, and as I'm starting to get up, I get trodden to death by the other four guys who, who trample all over me. So I'm getting up for the second time, and the, and the student is now out of the left seat, and he tramples me down. I, at this stage, I'm completely uninjured from the crash, but I, I've got tread marks all over me. And I start to laugh. I'm lying there laughing, because by now, the airplane hasn't blown up. It's just stopped. And... 
and I'm hearing Stu on the, on the radio, which is still working because the batteries were still working. Uh, Moresby, this is whatever I call something. Yeah, uh, can we resurrect our Sarwatch? Yeah, Sarwatch is resurrected. Thank you. Mayday, mayday, mayday. We just crashed. And I'm lying on the floor, pissing myself, laughing. And he looks around and says, what are you still doing here? And oh, I said, well, it's a bit late to do anything now. <laughs> so I sort of ambled up to the cockpit and just looked at him. And he looked at me and he said, you know when that happened, don't you? I said, yeah. He said, fairly obvious. He said, man, is there a lesson here? <laughs> that was his, his words. So we sort of casually strolled out the back of this airplane, which was now down this 30-degree slope. <clears throat> the tail of the caribou was sitting up on the end of the runway, and the uh, and, and, and the, because it's got this sloped-up tail, was matched the, the slope of the hill. Both of the <clears throat> undercarriage uh, legs were a little bit distorted because they'd impacted the fence and then gone down this hill. The whole front of the left-hand engine was gone, and propeller gearbox, the whole lot. The right-hand engine, the propeller had shattered, and there was just fragments of blade left. And we looked at it, and between the two red lines painted on the side of the fuselage, which say caution propeller, there were, I, I counted roughly about then, about a dozen holes. It turned out there was over 20 holes wow. through the side, all where these four guys and me lying were situated. One guy had a tiny nick on his, um, his uh, cheek, like a shaving nick, from a piece of a plastic side window which had shattered when a piece of the propeller went through it yeah. and out the other side. Okay, And uh, we all just looked at each other and went, Jesus, now what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> um, the other two caribous, we were the first in the line actually, so the other two caribous which were supposed to come in there and land and all over lunch together, they just continued on like they weren't about to land because there's this crashed aeroplane on the end of a 2,000 foot strip, yeah. looked fairly large. And they thought, oh no, but they, <clears throat> the word went out, hey we need rescue and all this sort of stuff. And later that afternoon one of the permanently based caribous at Port Moresby came in with an initial team of, of troops to survey the, the damage and to fly us out of there. And uh, <laughs> So we all went back to Port Moresby. The other two aeroplanes continued on their training flight. And um, I think they picked up the guy who was the other student with me. But for some reason, I didn't go. I was told, oh, you're, you're senior enough. You can, you can hang around and help us with this thing, right? So actually, that turned out to be pretty good for me because uh, I got this other guy who was one of the, the more senior operators out of um, the permanent attachment we have in Port Moresby there because there were three aeroplanes based there permanently in addition to the three that we'd brought up there. Right? And so it was his primary job to now start running a caribou shuttle service into Tufi with all the gear needed to rebuild this aeroplane and get it out of, the, out of the mess there. It was a big job. And I became his co-pilot slash student, if you like. Okay. Right? So the very next day, of course, having got back to Moresby and licked my wounds, had a good drink that night, we get into this caribou loaded with troops and spanners and gear and all that sort of stuff to go and figure out what the hell they're going to do about this bent aeroplane. And we arrive over Tufi and he says, OK, no, you're landing. Aha. <laughs> like at this stage, I have still not landed on a slopey strip ever. <clears throat> it's only 2,000 feet of grass, and it's got this big aeroplane at the end of it, right? So any thought of overrunning this time was going to be a total disaster. But you know, mathematically, you can say oh, it was only this big and it was that long, but it just looked 10 times bigger. So I got myself all tied up, and I, I got the aeroplane on finals, did everything I was taught, and it all worked dropped the aeroplane on the ground and the first two inches of grass after the beach threw it into reverse, slammed in reverse, stopped halfway up the strip. 
<laughs> had to use almost full power to taxi up the hill the rest of the way to, to this little grass parking area. And this guy with me said, see what you can do when you get it right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was really rubbing it in. He really was. We only used half the runway. Anyway, so then started a shuttle service for the next week, almost two weeks. Myself and this other guy, his name was Bailey McKenney, shuttled back and forth with troops. But in between time, because we moved a bunch of troops in, and they'd like, take the engine out. We had to put the engine in the back of our caravan and fly it back in and bring a new engine. So there's a lot of this sort of stuff. And that was really interesting, just the whole logistics of working. But in the meantime, of course, sometimes we wouldn't go back just directly to Port Moresby. We'd go via a couple of other places. So I effectively did my New Guinea trainer going to these places almost with my own personal instructor. And that was really cool. That was good. I got to fly and navigate every leg and also do this really serious stuff. But the interesting thing was after about two or three days when they, the first thing they did was they dragged the airplane back up onto the runway. Um, they got oh, a thousand of the locals, right? And cargo straps they tried to use and went strong enough. And these locals went out and got these vines, these massive vines, like the steel horses that hold up the Brooklyn Bridge and, thing, and lashed it around the undercarriage and just by pure manpower, dragged it back up the hill and dragged it into this little parking area there. Wow. First first day they'd done that. What's the weight of the caravan? Well, it was pretty empty then. Yeah. Uh, i trying to think it would have been around about 20,000 pounds, 10 tons. Wow. Hmm. Uh, they got a lot of guys, a lot of locals, because the locals came from everywhere. Yeah. Oh, they did. <laughs> the locals came from everywhere, thousands of them, because this was a big event at Tufi. Tufi's was a little... A little village that had a little Kiap, uh, a little um, local ranger station there itself. But these guys, these thousands of natives came. They walked for probably all night and the next day to get there to help, you know. Cool. And they were all the time around there. So they dragged this thing out, and then the first thing they did was to start to strip out the engines, and also they stripped out the cabin because they wanted to find out where all these bits of propeller had gone. Yeah. And this was a real eye opener for me because the, the floor of a caribou. It's quite strong to carry all the loads. It's got these aluminium I-beams, if you like, underneath it, about six inches deep, metal skinned, and then just ordinary <clears throat> five-ply wood on top of it, which was disposable. Every once in a while, you just rip that out and put new stuff in yeah. as it got chipped and battered with loads and so forth on top. So rip that out away. And here in the metal skin underneath the plywood was a cut and the tip of a propeller blade. Wow. And it was in the middle of the floor exactly five foot six inches from the step. Wow. I'm five foot eight and a quarter inches. It was two inches below the top of my head, right in the back of my head. It had stopped before it went through the, the plywood and before it went through my head. Wow. It would have decapitated me like a bloody taking the top off an egg. Yeah. And it was the complete tip of a propeller, about six inches wide and about six inches with a still paint on it had broken off and had gone through the, the rounded bottom of the of the aeroplane and angled up through the all these aluminium I-beams, which had obviously <laughs> obviously dissipated the energy and it had stopped a quarter of an inch from my head. Wow. Yeah, wow. And I, and I actually lay down on the floor and, and felt the bump because now I could feel it in the, in the metal skin right behind my head and I just went, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it would kill me. Yeah. We'd just take my head off, just as simple as that. A bit more energy. If he'd spooled up the engines a fraction, I don't know what the RPMs the engines got to, but obviously not quite enough to take my head off, so that was fine. So that was quite, that was quite an eye-opener, yeah. So we, uh, over the next, I oh, say two weeks, they rebuilt the airplane. 
they jacked it up, they put new undercarriage legs on it, put new engines on it, and new propellers on it. And which I helped, Bailey and I flew in and out one caribou trip per engine and per propeller, back and forth, back. I got pretty good at landing at two feet by the end of the day. No problem at all. <laughs> Getting pretty blase about this towards the end there, which was all good stuff, of course, doing this, you know, working like this. And, they, uh, and we'd moved in there about, oh, I think about 15 or 20 troops, engine fritters and airframe fitters and all with rivet guns and patched up holes and all, and at least got it to a flying stage so that uh, it could be taken back home yeah. and then put through the, the maintenance shop properly and, and maybe redone. And in those days in the Air Force, they had uh, this rare thing called a flying engineer, not many of them around, right. uh, who were basic engineers but were given pilot certification so they could help with maintenance test flying. So we had one. Right. Huh? His name was Tiny Ashbrook. Tiny because he was about six foot six. <laughs> so that was his nickname, obviously. And uh, he was one of these guys. So having And so he supervised the reassembly of the whole thing. And then uh, he flew it out of two feet. Okay. Completely empty, completely lightweight. I, on the other hand, or Bailey and I, on the other hand, had the last flight out of there with everything else on it. All the troops, all the leftover tools. And we were at max all, all up weight. Right. He was very light, so he took off, no problem at all. By now it had been raining a little bit. So we got to the top of Tufi Runway, to the downhill slope towards the beach. And uh, yeah, the, the, by now the runway was a bit soggy and a bit damp. And this is the, the last takeoff out of Tufi, and it very nearly was. <laughs> because I gunned this thing and down the thing, the rotate speed was 66 knots with this load on. We got to 60 knots and it wasn't accelerating anymore. Full bore, I, I threw the gate of 50. The max power was 50 inches manifold pressure. I think we were doing about 55. We just shoved it right up there. Go, you mugger, go. And we kept hitting these big mud puddles. And you could feel the airplane wanted to accelerate, and it would decelerate. And the end of the beach was coming up, and we were doing 60 knots. And there was no choice. I just grabbed the wheel and hauled it full back into my guts and said, Fly, you bastard, fly. And it did. We got sort of airborne ground effect. It floated off the ground, across the beach, and across the water. I grabbed the undercarriage lever and whipped the wheels up as quick as I could in case they started cutting awake in the water. And we went for the next mile in ground effect out across the water as he slowly accelerated and staggered back up. And Bailey and I looked at each other and went, oh, shit, nearly twice you died at two feet. <laughs> and flew it home. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so that, that ended that adventure. But I must uh, say there was one additional thing which occurred there, which is almost folk folklore. In those days, of course, the Australian government <clears throat> administered Papua New Guinea. So they had these local, I think they were called rangers. I don't remember what the official title was because the locals called them kiaps, which is the pidgin English for the cap. They wore these little peak military type caps around the place like a policeman does, right? Because they were the police, the judge, the jury, the, everything. And they had them dotted all over the place. And the local kiap was situated there. And around the coastline about, oh, well, about a day's motorcycle ride as we learned, was another one of these, in a place called Wanagila. And there was also a bit of a nursing facility there with a couple of Australian nurses. Okay. Now, um, how can I put this without being too indelicate? Some of the nurses who went to these places weren't the ones that you were going to date yeah, when, when you went to the local nurses' dance. You know, they're the ones that had to go there because <laughs> there was no fun there. And one of them was named Nell. And, and the, the story was that Nell had not... Um, actually seen a white man for some months <laughs> working with the natives. Nell had heard that there was this whole host of white people living in tents 
beside the airfield at Tufi, and she got on her motorbike, took a leave of absence, got on a motorbike, and drove to Tufi, and spent the rest of the week with the troops, taking care of them, shall we say. <laughs> and <laughs> for, for the military people listening, you probably heard of the Ballad of Eskimo Nell. Well, they changed the words. This was the Ballad of Nell from Wanagila. <laughs> <laughs> and I won't mention who the troops were, and I have no idea what transpired in those tents after hours, but Nell went back after a week with a big smile on her face, <coughs> and the morale of the troops was kept high. <laughs> so we, uh, that ended the course. I graduated from the, from the, uh, the Caribou course, and they made me a captain straight off course, which was cool. Yeah. So I got a captaincy off course, um, which means I could, and of course, a C category captain means I didn't do the big major operations, but I could fly the airplane around a smaller job straight up. But within a month, I was sent back to Papua New Guinea again. And the deal there, even though I was a captain in Australia, I had to do another month as a co-pilot in Papua New Guinea to uh, because the countryside was just that much more challenging to learn to navigate around the place. And that was fine by me because I, now I'd appreciated how dodgy this place was. <laughs> and so I, went, I spent another month... Um, as a co-pilot in Papua New Guinea. I went up there for two months. So I did the course, spent a month at home as a captain in, in New Guinea, uh, in, in Australia, and then went up there for two months solid. First month I was co-pilot, and the second month I was captain up there. So I had this fairly accelerated, uh, if you like, uh, um, promotion in terms of my, my responsibilities in the aeroplane, which I loved because it was really, really good. I was getting to know this aeroplane quite well, and I was really getting to enjoy what we were doing, especially in Papua New Guinea, because in those days we were supporting all these key apps all over the place. So we're flying in everything from just food supplies to their grog uh, to the odd Land Rover, which you know, they managed to barrel roll into a ditch and, and hadn't needed a replacement and all sorts of stuff like that. So the whole operation was permanently based there was in support of the local community, so to speak. Right. And it was on one of these flights, um, either just before or just after I got my captaincy, I was with another guy and we were up in Weewak and we were working in that area for a while. We'd heard about these... World War II derelict aeroplanes parked at a little airfield called Taji, which is along the coast to the west of Weewak, about, not far, about half an hour's flying time or so like that. And we had this particularly quiet day, so we decided we would just go to Taji and have a look. Okay. Completely sort of unscheduled, but you know, we hopped in our caravan and we flew to Taji. And it was an old abandoned World War II strip, which most aeroplanes didn't go in, but it was caribou quality strip. Yeah. By now I'd learned you could land a caribou almost anywhere if you knew your stuff. It was rough and bouncy and it had weeds growing up through all the old broken bitumen and so forth, but you know, it was, it was caribou territory. So we got the caribou in it easy. It's quite long enough, just a rough surface. And here we found all of these World War II fighters. And I was amazed because this was 1971. Right. So how many years is that after World War II finished? Almost there. 25 years. Yeah. Right? And there was, I've lost count now, there were um, P-40 Kitty Hawks and P-30 whatever it was, P 38? No. Cobras. Cobra, yeah. Uh, I think there was about four of each, maybe more, maybe I'm not quite, but they had been based in, in, in Taji, obviously, and they at the end of the war they were lined up either side of the threshold end of the runway and they'd just been pushed back off the runway into what was obviously then long grass. Um, and the grass had grown around. But fortunately, not a lot of the normal jungle-type creepers and things, because, again, it was right on the coast, so the, the, the soil was very salty. Yeah. So a lot of the really, really lush growth was not there. There were mangroves further out in the water, 
but just between the sealed runway or the, what used to be a sealed runway and the beach itself it was just this kunai grass and, and pig grass and stuff so no major creepers to get into these things so these airplanes were sitting there looking quite pristine one of the P-40s I recall still had uh, ammunition in the, in the, in the gun bays there was still oil dripping from one of the engines. You could still read the pilot and the crew chief's name on the side. There was nothing wrong with them, apart from the fact they'd been sitting there in the open, in the tropical heat and the salt water for 25 years. But the corrosion was surprisingly little. The fabric on the rudders and that was gone, but those details. They were basically intact. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, one could get these flying. Yeah. Now, I've subsequently learned, and thank you for filling in some of it, that shortly after I saw these things there, um, some guys actually went in there and got them all. Yes. And one of them is now flying up in, uh, in Ardmore, belonging to a lady named Niz, Liz Needham. That's right. Yeah, That's yeah. one of the Taji ones that we saw long before Liz got it. And I believe I've seen it fly since then. It's immaculate. Yeah. It's beautiful. yeah. yeah. So that was fascinating um, that these sorts of things were still all over the place, skipping way ahead. And I'll, I'll sort of end on this note, but way, way ahead. Years and years later, I actually managed to go across to a place called Babo Island, which is in the Indonesian side, uh, and over near Ambon Way there. And we landed there deliberately again, just to have a look at these things, because you flew over and you could look down through the very long grass there, and you could see Betty bombers and and Kate, I think they're fighters, the the, the one that looked a bit like a a, um, a Messerschmitt. And uh, there was about a dozen or so of those there too, still in pristine condition. I don't know what's happened to them because we got roused out of there by a local Indonesian guard who waved his rifle at us because we shouldn't have even been there, you know, so we did, since we were sort of on foreign soil. Yeah. Um, but you still hear from time to time people rescuing wrecks and so forth from, from that area there, so they're still there. Yeah. They're still there. After all of these years, they're still finding them. So. Amazing. Well, just before we end, though, could I just ask a couple of questions about the caribou? Sure, um, yeah. It was a Canadian designed aircraft. Canadian design, DHC four. Um, yeah, but the um, the RAAF ones were they built in Australia? No, like, no, Canada. Like, They're all Canadian. Yeah. So they were no different from Canadian ones. They hadn't done any adjustments. No, not at all. Right. Um, just just from the from the, the, the rivet counter point of view, the DHC one, of course, was the chipmunk. Yep. The DHC two was the beaver. DHC-3 was the otter, DHC-4 was the caribou, the DHC-5 was the buffalo, and now we're up to DHC-8, but they've, they've dropped the DHC now, it's just the dash 8, which is a little airliner. Yeah. Uh, no, it was stock standard. All the caribous were, um, were purchased directly from Canada. I've seen old photographs of guy, the guys who picked them up, you know, taking off in the snow-covered thing. In fact, the very first caribous, which were picked up uh, by the crews in those days with big fuel bladders in the back to, to ferry across the Atlantic and so forth on the way to Australia were diverted directly into Vietnam. Oh. I think it was about the first three, four of them uh, never got to Australia. They went straight to Vietnam because okay. by then you know, our commitment to Vietnam had kicked in. And uh, yeah, so every one of them was ferried across. The last one was number, I remember it was 299. I wasn't involved in any of this. They were all there by the time I got there. But it was the last one ferried across and it, um, it came across... Um, the Atlantic and down that way. I think it might have come another one. I can't remember now. But yeah, long journey for a caribou. So all of the ones that the Australians operated were they all the same model. There was yep. there's no difference between any. Yeah, the only only significant difference you'll see between the Australian caribous and maybe it's some of the American ones was they tacked a radar nose on them, a little blister up the front there with you know in, oh. in air to air radar or weather radar or something like that. But no, apart from that, they were all exactly the same airplane. I don't think they'd. 
the Haviland Carter actually made any different models. I think they probably upgraded a few little things as they went along with the experience, but no, they're all the same machine. Yeah. Okay, okay. They, they were quite an, um, an amazing company and, and that, you know, the, yeah. that lineage just, they just kept out com coming out with amazing aircraft. Yes. They're all still going now. Every one of those airplanes that they made is still going. The chipmunks are still around, the beaver's still around, the otter. Yep. Well, that developed into the twin otter, of course, which was very handy. Yep. Yep. Uh, the, 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 the buffalo didn't go so well. I had to fly in a buffalo, just skipping way, way ahead. I had a chance... Uh, shortly before I left the Air Force of going to Canada, part of an exercise over there called Bullseye, which involved C-130s. And, um, but I went to the, um, the de Havilland factory in Toronto there. And it was interesting. I was expecting this Boeing-type assembly lines, all pristine compute. No, it was like a cottage industry, but a huge cottage industry, because they were making the Dash 8s, the Dash 7s and another aeroplane, that the, I can't remember which. And they all mix and match. There were bits of aeroplanes everywhere. Guys walking around with a, with a sort of a flap lever saying, which aeroplane does this one fit in? <laughs> I think, oh my God, how do you ever produce anything with quality? But out the end came these aeroplanes. It really was. It was a fascinating place. Um, and they, uh, they, they I, I don't know what they, they still make. Are the Dash 8 still in production, I think, is it? I'm not sure, but I guess they probably are. Oh, well, I know it's, um, the name's changed to Bombardier now, isn't it? The, the company name, but... Oh, well, that... Yeah, okay. They still call them Dash 8s. Yeah, uh, the Bombardier... They probably bought them out. I mean, yeah. the Haviland has been basically either bought out or merged with other companies, which is a shame. I mean, there was a de Havilland thing at Bankstown when I was there too, because they used to service all the caribous there and the vampires. Yeah. Uh, when we had vampires there, it's all gone. I think they make aluminium boats now, which is a bit of a shame. Um, so that's side of the industry. The cottage, the cottage industries have been absorbed by the bigger, the bigger ones. Yeah, but uh, no, they were. And as I say, they were a great airplane. I mean, when I first got to fly Caribous in 1971, they were already talking about what's going to be the replacement. Really? Yep. Yeah. Right. Thirty years later, they finally phased them out without any real replacement. They looked at all sorts of things. I mean, the obvious. It's, 40, it's almost 40 years 40 years, later, yeah. 40 years later. Incredible. I mean, when did they phase them out? Only about three or four years ago? Yeah. Five years ago? Yeah. And having phased them out, of course, there's a couple of them still flying in civilian hands. That's right, yeah. yeah. They yeah. reckon they were going to have troubles replacing engine parts, the crankcases. So, I mean, some of the crankcases on the airplanes I flew were dated 1940. Wow. Well, the Pratt Whitney R2000 was one of the most ubiquitous engines ever made. Yeah. Everything. I mean, the B17 was powered by them. Yeah. Right? Um, they built millions of these things. And so there was just, apparently there's just spares everywhere. You look under the rug in the home and there was a spare part for Pratt and Whitney. So even though the Air Force had decided, oh no, we're getting too old now, we've got to phase these things out because we can't get the spares, the spares seemed to keep coming out of nowhere for the next 30 or 40 years <laughs> to keep them working. Now maybe there was some fatigue stuff built up. Um, uh, Bob Delahunty with his, uh, his operation at Illawarra has got one flying. I think he was given two of them, one for spares, one for, to fly. I'm quite sure that they're not going to throw them in and out of rough paddocks and really jar them around anymore in case something fatigues too much and cracks. Yeah. It's now an air show airplane. And that's okay. That's fine. Yeah. But yeah, they lasted forever. But they looked at the Buffalo because everyone said, oh, the Buffalo's got to be the next best thing. It's got you know, gas turbines and goes faster and yada, yada, yada. Um, the trouble is, and I've said this to a lot of people, the gas, most of these modern gas turbine engines also have these wonderful scimitar-shaped carbon fibre blades. You cannot throw them into some of the paddocks that we used to go to yeah. and bounce stones off them. 
I mean, I've, I've, I've got stone chips and propellers. We've got out the bastard file and trimmed them out and cranked it up and taken off again. You can't do that with a carbon fibre propeller. <laughs> you do that, it's screwed. We've ingested mud and crap. I'm skipping way ahead now, but there was a, there was a, a time up in um, uh, when I was operating out of Erie and Jaya where we're having trouble with our fuel. We used to drop fuel drums all over the place up there yeah. so we could lob in and refuel, right? And the locals would unscrew the caps and take the rubber seals and wear them as armbands and put the cap back on, right? Okay. Which means moisture would get in. So by the time you went to refuel these things, you had these little things called a hydro kit. You'd test the fuel and they'd all come up negative. You'd contaminate with water. We couldn't use them. Yeah. Damn. So we had to find places to hide our fuel drums, our piles of fuel drums in airfields where the natives couldn't get at. Well, of course, you know, that's just not impossible, not possible. Yeah. But we did find this one place, there was a little island um, off the north coast of Irianjaya, which used to have oh, it was a tiny, tiny little island, uh, football field size thing. And the only reason it was focused on it, there was an old World War II runway on it okay. of about four or 5,000 feet of bitumen, which had long been overgrown and full of weeds and crap and all, but the first five or six hundred feet of it was exposed and looked okay <laughs> and the rest of it was this really soft pig grassy type stuff right so we thought we can get a caribou in there i thought we could get a caribou in there well we did we got in there right but i lengthened the runway by about two aircraft lengths <laughs> because <laughs> having touched down we realized that this this runway this the bitumen was covered in this slimy mossy stuff so the brakes were useless so with full reverse thrust we slid, brakes locked. It was almost like Toofy over again, except it was just this slimy pig grassy stuff. Yeah. We entered this stuff and just converted it into this slimy green mulch, which went all over, right over the windscreen, over the engines, over, the, over everything, down the intakes. The engines just gobbled it up and spat it out. I, le- I just left it in reverse thrust after we stopped and just backed back out of it again. A couple of aircraft legs worked the windscreen wipers to wipe the slime off. And we got out and fell over immediately because you couldn't even walk in the stuff. It was like walking on ice. It was so slippery. I thought, no, this is not going to be a good place to uh, to store our fuel drums because you know, one could come to grief. If, if the fuel drums are there, you're going to run into them. Yeah. So we turned around and took off from that. But this airplane was just covered in green slime. And I mean, there was a case um, also we did a big exercise in the middle of Australia where the green caribou against the red desert sand stood out like the sore thumb. Not good camouflage in the middle of Australia. So the guys who were on the exercise got out some buckets and some mops and put red mud in the buckets and sloshed it all over the aeroplane okay. and camouflaged them by spraying or mopping mud all over them to break up the outline. And it worked. But the thing was carrying about you know, 200 weight of mud, <laughs> which they just hosed off afterwards. You just don't do that to a gas turbine engine. <laughs> just don't do it. And I went, uh, so we're up in, in, in uh, as part of this exercise. So I got to, I hitched a ride in one of these um, buffaloes one day. They were doing a low-level exercise, and they had Doppler and all sorts of this modern electronic gear, which is all very nice, but just seemed to be a bit too redundant for the type of operation. You couldn't, you can't use Doppler in the mountain, flying valleys and things. It just gets so totally confused. Yeah. So I'm thinking these airplanes have got too much gear in them for what we'd need them for. And those gas turbine engines would not hack it. And sure enough, they, they never replaced the caribou with anything like that because they just wouldn't handle it. Right, right. There was another move some time back, going way back now, when the Australian Air Force got the Chinook helicopter. Right. Now, the interesting thing about the Chinook helicopter is that it actually carries more weight than a caribou. Yeah. Right? An and, it, and it cruises 10 knots faster. So, of course, all the boffins at the Canberra say, well, let's just get rid of all the caribous and we'll, we'll just have Chinooks. Until someone said, uh, 
Yeah, there's only one small problem. What's that? You need two caribous to keep the fuel up to the one Chinook. <laughs> ah, bugger. <laughs> <laughs> These things used to consume so much gas. Literally, uh, in the exercise that we did where they had to deploy Chinooks forward because of the roll, it took two caribous to, to resupply them with fuel. Right. So that idea died. <laughs> <laughs> and they became irreplaceable. Um, and, it's not, and they haven't bothered. They haven't bothered now. I mean, the smallest airplane in the inventory now is the C-130J model, because now they've gone up to the C-17, which is the bigger brother again. So we've gone more to the strategic airlift stuff, because we know how long have a responsibility in Papua New Guinea for short field work. And there's not a huge responsibility for short field work in Australia. There was a time when they used to come across here to New Zealand, to the South Island, to practice. Yeah, I remember. To get some short fields in mountainous conditions there when Papua New Guinea sort of got its independence and we couldn't go there quite as flexibly. Uh, because there's nowhere in Australia you can really practice. Because right. Australia's so big and flat. And the average bush cocky has got two million acres. Yeah. He's got his own Cessna 210. And he doesn't want a stall field. He's got so much room. He puts in a 5,000-foot sealed runway with VHF-controlled runway lighting. And that's his private strip. So we couldn't find anywhere to practice. <laughs> so the whole need for the aeroplane kind of dried up. And so it's never been replaced. But they've actually, they have announced a replacement now. Uh, just recently it was... Have uh, they? Yeah, I think it's a um, C297. This is the CASA thing. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, again, it's, it's gas turbine, carbon, yeah. carbon plate. It yeah. won't do the same draw. No. They've obviously redefined the role. Yes, there probably is a need for something smaller than a C-130 to do some stuff around Australia in the shorter strips. And if that's all the places they're going to go, well, that's cool. Um, Australia was too big for a caribou um, because we're not involved in Papua New Guinea and those places again. So, yeah, it's probably within the refined or redefined role, it probably suits, and that's fine. That's fine. Uh, I've seen it fly on the odd air show thing, and it looks like quite a a sparkling little aeroplane. Yes. Well, not little. It's a caribou-sized machine. Yeah. Yeah. But it just won't... It can't be the Blues Brothers car. No, no, no that's right. But they'd be a bit more like our Andovers, where, which could take a bit of the rough. But oh, I hope they're better than the Andovers. Come on. <laughs> uh, Hawker Sidley Andover was the greatest abomination. <laughs> they really were. Really? Oh, no. Those dart engines and so forth to start with, they split your ears. Now they were oh, not. Yeah. They, yeah, well, I hope it's a lot better than the Andover here. Yeah. But probably, but yes, in the role that you're talking about, yes. yes. A short they range. Could go, they could go into, into the short strips, but they wouldn't go into the really rough ones like the caribou. No. Yeah. Well, the Andover didn't go real short because it didn't have reverse thrust. The Dart engines didn't have reverse thrust. Okay. Yeah. So they still was kind of limited to an average size strip. Yeah, but even so, something that you didn't need to send a C-130 for. But having said that, I mean, the C-130's got into Gerildery okay, and out again. (laughs) It wasn't a very big strip. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what the powers that be thinking of these roles for aeroplanes are thinking about long since been out of that business. Don't know. Don't know. Tell me about um, Port Moresby being based there. What was it like uh, as a place to live? um, Being polite, a diseased place. I didn't like it at all. Yeah. We used to live in the Minden Army Barracks in Port Moresby, which was a little bit out of town, and it was a pretty basic Army Barracks-type arrangement. The town itself, um, back in those days, I mean, we're going, I'm going back to the 70s now. Um, Papua New Guinea is a spectacular place to fly around, and the scenery is just magnificent. And the natives in their native habitat are a well-respectable uh, people. 
Right? Uh, I used to go up to the highlands all the time and you'd see the natives there in their all their gear and very polite, very respectful and, and people to be respected. I used to enjoy, in fact, every time I could, I'd opt to go and opt work in the Highlands because we sent airplanes up there for days at a time. I kind of became the, the Western Highlands expert, if you like, because that's where I wanted to spend my time because I enjoyed that up there. Yeah. Also, you're based at slightly higher altitudes, about 5,000 feet out of Mount Hagen, which means it was cooler at night. Port Moresby itself, though, was like a lot of these um, places like in Africa, which were half-westernized. Right. Okay? You had the half-educated natives who wanted what the white guys got. And so as a result, you had a lot of racial problems there and uh, a lot of theft, murder, disease. And I didn't like Port Moresby at all because there was a group of white people up there who made it still a bit like the White Rise. They had their swimming clubs and all the rest of it. Then you had the natives. So there was very definitely this racial difference there yeah. and, uh, and the tensions it caused. I mean, in later years, um, they had all sorts of fairly nasty situations occurred there. And it spread. Unfortunately, I heard um, there was a little while back, it was a commercial pilot got knifed at an ATM in Mount Hagen. Well, when I was there in Mount Hagen, of course, this was just, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the Garden of Eden in, in Papua New Guinea. And, yeah. and the natives were you know, happy because they were doing their native thing. Yes. They weren't half westernized. But having said that, an interesting, it just popped into my head, I don't want to drag this on too long. But some people may have heard of a thing called the cargo cult. Back in World War II, there emerged this thing called the cargo cult, mostly around the Weewak in the northern regions. And it came about because during World War II, the Yanks were airdropping stuff all over the place. Yeah. Along here, when, when they were fighting the Japs in that region there, a lot of air resupply was happening. This cargo was falling from the sky. Okay? Now put yourself in the mind of these natives who were living in their thatched huts in the jungle. Right? Really primitive were seeing this happening. Right. And uh, from this emerged this quasi-religious cult, which determined that all they had to do was attract these big birds, the big balus, the big balus, to come and drop the cargo for them. So they were actually making mock runways and building mock airplanes out of bamboo and so forth in the hope of attracting these balus to drop the cargo to them. <laughs> yeah. Now, you think this would have died with World War II, but it hadn't. It was still there. In fact, about 20 years ago, there was a couple of cargo cultists I think made it to Parliament up there. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, we used to fly around there with these cardboard boxes uh, with sandwiches in it, our box lunch you get from the local pubs. And what do you do with it when you eat it? You toss it out the back because it's, it's biodegradable cardboard. There's no plastics in it. It was just, you know. We were told under no circumstances to toss anything out into the jungles in that area to the southwest of we whack and so forth because that's where the cargo cult was. Anything that fell out of the, even a cardboard box falling out of the sky would be probably useful and somehow because they were heavyweight cardboard boxes, they'd, they'd handle the float down into the trees, yeah. would be sort of to try and would, would bolster these cargo cults, which of course all the local missionaries are trying to stamp out as, you know, <laughs> as, as being, oh, yeah, not the true faith. Not that the missionaries had a true faith anyway, but that's more atheism coming out. But um, they're still there. I mean, I heard a story about. Um, some guys who had a uh, an outboard motor, Johnson outboard motor, which the locals thought must have come from President Johnson in the United States via the cargo cult, and all these strange things. So it was an interesting country of, of, of differences like this. We yes. had cargo cult on the one hand, you had highly educated ones on another place, 
that, that cult is fantastic. It's just, it reminds me of the movie um, The Gods Must Be Crazy, where the, yes. where the Coke bottle comes out. Yes, it? it was exactly that. <laughs> um, but as I was, uh, I'm skipping way ahead now. I'm probably going to... I might come back and talk about this. But I, again, later, later, later in my time, because I, I shuttled back and forth in that place. I spent uh, several years up there in total and uh, over, spread over about a five or six year period. Now we're dragging on here a bit, but, uh, but it's part of the culture up there. There was, at the time, at this particular year I'm talking about, many years after I've graduated, and I'm now a Category B check and training captain, all the rest of the place, still used to enjoy going up there. We had in the Air Force, the Chief of the Air Force was an Air Vice or Air Marshal Townsend. Right? And he had been a fighter pilot during World War II and was shot down near a town called Biella in New Britain, which is the island north of Papua New Guinea proper. Okay? And apparently within a couple of days, a P-38 Lightning was also shot down in the same, ditched into the same little lagoon. And this American came ashore. His name was Fred Hagashima. And Townsend and Hagashima were both survivors in this thing, and the locals took care of them. The Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels, you heard about yes. them, took care of them for, oh, I don't know, maybe weeks or a month finally smuggled them through to a, to a coast watcher who arranged a PT bet and got them out, saved their lives effectively. And they had vowed to do what they could for these natives when the war was over. Townsend became the chief of the Air Force. Fred Hagashima, I believe, became a fairly wealthy industrialist in the United States. And how I came by this is we got this task one day to fly a whole bunch of secondhand but quite good wooden school desks into Biella. Never been to Biella before, just a little grass strip on the side of the one of the good things about caravan ops, you went to places you've never seen before. The airplane handled it. So he flew all these wooden desks into Biella. They were to go to the local school. Fine. We didn't ask questions. We flew them in. And, of course, we got there and we're surrounded with a sea of children. As Everywhere you go, there's this sea of children with runny noses, flies blowing everywhere, grass, um, loincloth type things, big machetes in their belt, bare-chested, grotty gibbering away in the local diet, all funny, all, yeah. all having a wonderful time. Yeah. You see that wherever we went, we used to take little bars of chocolate and toss them to them and so forth. The kids would love you for that. Anyway, so we pulled up and a couple of these guys came down to offload the desks and help the loadmaster and there was two teachers, and American teachers, okay. came and said, hey, you've got to come up to the school and see what we're doing here. So we wandered up to see their school, which was something else. You know, really, this is Fred Haggish put the money in the building. It's a really good school. But we're walking up this path, probably only about half a kilometre long, and all these kids around us all the time. And then out of these, all these gibbering voices comes this very distinct, almost English accent saying, excuse me, sir, what is the horsepower of the engines on your aircraft? <laughs> I sort of stopped and looked around and said, who said that? <laughs> and this little grotty, oh, snotty-nosed little kid said it again. What is the horsepower? He spoke impeccable English. And I looked at these two teachers and they said, yeah, they all do. So I started talking, and they all spoke perfect English. Wow. I never come across, I said, what's going on here? And this American teacher said, well, one day this country's going to have its independence. These are the kids that are going to be running it. And I wouldn't mind betting that whoever's in Parliament, uh, probably some of these kids. Yeah. They were educating them, speak English, understand. I went up and looked at this school, and they had up on this little hill overlooking this beautiful bay with all the bamboo school. And they said, these children sometimes walk five and ten miles through the monsoons to get here every morning and go home every night to be at school. Never have a day absence, nothing like that. I said, it's a whole lot better than the schools in the Western civilization. They said, oh yeah, these kids really appreciate it. And I was quite amazed. And this came about because of, of this incident with the Coast Watchers back when Townsend and Hagashima were shot down. 
So there's a whole different thing. So here on one hand, you've got these highly, for their age, highly educated young kids, and yet four hours flying time to the west, there's the cargo cult. <laughs> and in between is all these different sorts of, and it was a fascinating place to fly around. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, apart, the only place I didn't like was Port Moresby. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. Now we've really dragged on, haven't we, talking yeah, about well, the politics of the place. <laughs> we'll, we'll probably stop it there. And we'll, yeah. we'll, well, it was the caribou that took me around all of these places, so for that, if nothing else, I thank that wonderful aeroplane for it. It was a, a life experience, which I would not have had flying fighters, no question. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks very much, Noel. Okay, you're welcome. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.